Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Welcome. <laughs> How's everyone doing? Good, good. Uh, one other thing about Our How. Our How is an incredible organization. Uh, not only do we work with them on Saturdays, but also our youth group is paired up with them. Um, they, uh, the, the church Our How was started 16 years ago, started by two pastors who were both recovering addicts. Um, and a lot of their community is made up of recovering addicts. Um, so they do incredible, incredible work, um, getting people back on their feet, forming community. Uh, they are really active. And um, I think that's one of the, the beauties of the kingdom and how God works is that he finds out what people have resources-wise and he pairs them together for the same work. And so um, we, we bring our resources to the relationship and they bring theirs to us. And it's a really cool thing. So extending hope again, um, that's going through the end of December. There are a bunch of different ways you can get involved. We'd love that. All right. Y'all, that ball. Come on. We give it up. Who was at the ball? Who was there? Yes. I woke up the next morning and I thought, I can't walk today because my legs just are not working. I danced the night away. Uh, It was a blast. If you were not there, I got nothing to say for you right there. You know, no consolation. Sorry. Other than... Um, Yeah, we got some pictures scrolling. Other than uh, we are making this an annual thing. So yeah, and we're gonna have to one up. We're gonna always have to one up, keep the the bar moving. So you just have to wait a whole 365 days for the next one. Go ahead and put it on your calendar. We don't have a date, just mark off all of December. It'll be sometime there. Um, But it was a blast. Thank you so much for coming out. Um, Thank you everyone for, for help putting it on and just being such an incredible family, incredible community. Um, So that was really great. One other thing, again, next Sunday is our Christmas service. Bring a friend, bring a dish. It's going to be really, really special. I already saw sort of the list of who's playing in the band. It is like a stack, like huge band, incredible sound. Um, We're singing some carols. Um, It's going to be a really, really cool time. So uh, be here, bring a dish so we can eat. And then, as Joseph said, no service the week after, but service on the 30th. And then we get back in January, we are kicking off a new series that we are calling Home. Calling Home. Um, what we like to do, we realize, I mean, we're still so young. We're still figuring out, like, our traditions and our rhythms. But uh, we realize that we want to take the month of January, usually, and sort of uh, set a vision for the year. Like, what do we feel like God is inviting us into as a community? And uh, January can be a time where... You know, we've eaten too much and uh, we're like, all right, we want to start off on the right foot. We want to have resolutions, all sorts of resolutions. And often they fail. I don't know if you're like me, but my resolutions, my dad works for the YMCA. Uh, so my family, we grew up going to the Y and it was always really interesting because uh, in, in January, everyone's at the YMCA. You're not going to find a treadmill and there's not going to be one open, but just wait till about mid-February and then you're going to find a couple open. And then by March and April, it's back to normal, right? Um, but these resolutions fail. Now, we want to talk about why that's the case and maybe sort of reframe our thinking around the concept of home and, and what does it look like? Uh, what, what does home mean? And what does it look like to call places, to call people, to call relationships home? So that's kicking off on January 6th, and that'll be running through the month of January. So you want to be here for that. It's going to be a blast. Okay, let's pray. <laughs> and then we'll jump into today's topic. 
Lord, we, uh, Father, I just ask that you open all of our hearts here today to the mystery of this story, to the mystery of this faith. And it is mysterious, but it's also not, like we can see it. When we look upon Jesus, we see the gift of God. And I just ask that all of our eyes would be opened and we would be astonished by what an incredible and radical thing it is we're saying when we say that God came down to us. The creator came as one of us to teach us, to love us, to reveal why you made us. Open our eyes to that, Lord. As people are here from all different stages of their journey, all different places of their relationship with with you and with one another, would they know that you have no expectations on them? There's no such thing as like, you know, you being disappointed, that you were for them right where they are today. That you were for them, you were for me. And your desire is to just enter into a relationship with us, to unite more deeply with us. So would you do that today? Open our ears, we're listening. It's in your name, Jesus, amen. Well, we've been in this series this fall that we've been calling sacraments. Uh, For those unfamiliar with that term sacrament or something being sacramental, uh, it's, it's essentially the idea that the creator wants to communicate to his creation, that the creator wants to speak to us. And the creator can do that through all sorts of forms, all sorts of ways. Um, The creator can speak through people. The creator can speak through institutions, through relationships, through objects. Um, But there's there's a pattern when that happens. There's a logic. Um, Essentially what what, what it is, is when the creator communicates with us, uh, there's something in us that is put to death. Because what God is saying is that uh, even though it feels, and this, this is part of the deception, even though it feels like you're, you're living a certain way, in fact, that, that way of life is leading you um, to, to death. It's not bringing you alive. It's not allowing flourishing. And so he invites us through, through a sacrament, through something, to another way of life, an alternative way of life. And at first, it feels very painful. And the reason why is because it's like a splint on a broken uh, bone. It's realigning it in, in the correct way. That's gonna be painful at first. It feels like a death, but he says, he promises if you trust him, if you enter into it, that the form of life, the abundance of life that's gonna take over is gonna be something that you've never experienced before. And that's what makes it a sacrament. We're coming to the end. Um, next week will be our last Uh, uh, sermon on the sacraments. And today what we want to talk about is the sacrament of waiting. Waiting. Waiting, patience, long-suffering. That's a significant character trait, we realize, um, for people in general, but especially for the people of God. And and, uh, the reason why is because it reveals to us the nature of God. Waiting is one of the premier distinctives of the Christmas season. Uh, so much about this story is talking about characters, uh, Jewish people who are waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the Savior. And we find as we get to the Christmas season that uh, uh, we remember that we're waiting. 
for lots of different things. That's one of the reasons that Christmas can be painful for many of us, can't it? Because it forces us. This is a season of, of supposed uh, joy and, and merriment um, and good things. And, and it does have that in places, but it also brings to mind that there are still parts of our lives and parts of the world that we're waiting on. There are still things that are not okay. And I want to contend that that's the gift of waiting. That's the sacrament of it. The pain of remembering that we're all still waiting for something. I want to read a passage today um, from Luke chapter 2. It talks about a guy named Simeon. Um, I'm going to read it. We're not going to talk about it throughout, and then I'm going to come back to it at the end, okay? So if you find yourself wondering, okay, why did we read this and then we're not talking about it, we're coming back, okay? Um, And this is a guy who has mastered the art of waiting. He knows what it is to wait, okay? So Luke 2, verses 25 through 32. This is what we read. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and he praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory for your people, Israel. Simeon knows how to wait. In this Christmas season, we are reminded that we are waiting. And When you're looking at this concept of what are we waiting for and how do we wait, I think that primarily waiting teaches us two things. I mean, there's lots of things that can be said, but I just want to focus on two today. The first thing that waiting does is waiting reveals our addictions. Waiting reveals our addictions. And the reason why we know this is because it takes the Christmas season to remind us of the pain of waiting to remind us that there are still things in our lives that aren't as we wish they were. We're addicted to things which allow us to forget that we're still waiting in the world. Um, There's a fascinating book that I just bought and I didn't read it. I made a classic blunder. I bought it and I was so excited about it that I listened to a podcast on the author talking about it and he basically gave me the synopsis and I don't have to read it. I'm like, crap, that's 12 bucks I wasted. I'll probably go back and read it at some point, but um, it's a really good book called The Hacking. Well, I assume it's a really good book. It's a great podcast, you know? (laughs) Awesome thesis. The Hacking of the American Mind by Dr. Robert Lustig, who's an endocrinologist. And uh, I had to look that up. I don't know what an endocrinologist is. Essentially, it looks at the hormones in the brain. All the doctors are like nodding their heads like, yeah, we know, we know. Um, it, It looks at the hormones released in the brains. And, and the neurotransmitters and how they sort of, the interrelationship between uh, the hormones and the rest of our body. That's what he studies. Um, and real quickly, because um, I've had a couple conversations with people, this is a bit of an aside, but I think it might be important to bring up today. Um, I had a couple conversations around this idea of, of thinking and faith 
And I just want to make sure we're clear and on the same page um, about who God is. Um, to be in a relationship with this God does not mean I check my brain at the door, just so you know. It's not this sense of blind faith that I'm like, hey, this makes no sense, but I'm going to keep like shutting my ears and going la, 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 and like choosing to believe. No, I actually think, and we can talk about this later, that this story makes the most sense for the world. It's actually the most probable story in lots of different ways. But I would also say since following Jesus, I think I've become a better thinker. That when I look at, I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid to read books on neuroscience because I would expect, and it's been the case, to find that, that the, the creation and the creator mutually inform one another, in fact. So I would expect to see that everything that's advocated for by God and in the person of Jesus is confirmed in neuroscience. And it is, and we'll get into that in a bit. Um, but that's, that's the first thing that I just want to make sure we're clear on that, that this no such thing as like, well, this isn't an anti-rational faith. In fact, following Jesus, I think has made me a better thinker. All right, that was my soapbox for the day. Now back. Um, hacking of the American mind about waiting. Dr. Lustig says, primarily, we in America are a culture of addicts. We are all addicted. And we are addicted because we have confused two key concepts pleasure and happiness. We've confused them. Pleasure and happiness. Reward, pleasure is reward, the reward system. Happiness is contentment, right? And even in like, you know, uh, codified in the declaration, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, really what we mean, or what, if you, if you ask someone, if you press someone, what do you mean by the pursuit of happiness? The, the way they'll flesh that out is they really mean the pursuit of pleasure the pursuit of a life that feels good, not any sort of um, unpleasant feelings in the body or in my life, definitely no suffering. So we've confused these terms, he says. And in, in, in the podcast, this is what he, uh, the transcript, he talks about the two. He says, pleasure is short-lived, happiness is long-lived. Pleasure is visceral, you feel it internally. Happiness is ethereal. It's something that is sort of above the neck, as it were. Pleasure is taking... Happiness is giving. Pleasure can be achieved with substances. Happiness cannot be achieved with substances. <clears throat> Pleasure is experienced alone. Happiness is usually experienced in social groups. The extremes of pleasure, whatever they may be, be that substances, we talk about nicotine, alcohol, tobacco, sugar, morphine, heroin, etc. Or we can talk about behaviors like the internet, shopping, pornography, social media, all of the aspects of pleasure, all of the things that lead to pleasure in their extreme lead to addiction. Whereas, he says, there's no such thing as being addicted to too much happiness. He's explaining the concepts of pleasure and happiness. And then he goes on to say, and the most important thing from, from my vantage, my studying, is that pleasure is dopamine and happiness is serotonin. This is neurotransmitters. Now, here's what's interesting, he explains. I'm gonna give you a neuro... You come to church, you get a neuroscience lesson today. How cool is that, right? Um, dopamine, when it's released, it excites the neurons. He says it tickles them, which I thought was a funny phrase. Uh, it tickles the neurons. And neurons like to be tickled. Who doesn't like a good tickling, right? <laughs> but, he says, neurons don't like to be over-tickled. Over right? You know, like, tickling's great, it's great, and then you snap, and you're like, get off me right now, <laughs> right? Neurons do the same thing. They don't like to be over-tickled. 
And so when the dopamine's released and it's exciting your neurons, if it's too much, what they do apparently is they downregulate, they downshift, they protect themselves, which means, and we all know this concept, which means it requires more of the thing, more of the dopamine to get the same sense of tickling, which is our tolerance, right? The first time you ever have a beer, you're like, what is this? A couple years later, one beer is not gonna have the same effect. The neurons have learned it. Chronic tickling of the neurons kills the neurons. That's their defense mechanism. Now, here's what's interesting, he says. Serotonin, when it's released in the brain, uh, it does not tickle the neurons. The word he says, it inhibits them, which as he explained it, I think means it sobers them, it calms them. It gives the neurons a sense of peace and wholeness and contentment. Serotonin does not um, kill the neurons in that sense, which is why he says you can't OD on happiness. And we all understand this intuitively. When you sit on a train and you just sit there for a second and what is our instinct? Pull out that phone, right? We need a hit. We can't sit in this uncomfortable, unpleasant space when there's silence and there's something crawling inside of us and we turn on the TV or turn on music. Um, even like things like gossip instead of blessing. Gossip gives us a hit. It gives us an excitement. So, so dopamine tickles the neurons. They downshift. Serotonin doesn't. It inhibits them. But he writes in his research, there's one major thing that reduces serotonin. Can you guess it? Dopamine. Dopamine reduces serotonin levels in the brain, which means the more pleasure you feel, the unhappier you get. That's a mic drop moment, guys. <laughs> the more pleasure you feel, the unhappier you get. Pleasure is premised on discontentment. Something feels off, I go get the new something, and it makes me feel better. Happiness is contentment. Or as Eric Hoffer writes, the pursuit for happiness is one of the chief sources of unhappiness. And really what he means is the pursuit for pleasure, which is, is, is tough for us because this is the backbone of the Western system, is it not? And that's what he's getting at. The backbone of the West of America is materialism and individualism. And both of these are premised on the idea of discontentment and more dopamine. So we talk about the constant acquisition of new things, new experiences, new relationship partners. As soon as it gets hard or it just, it doesn't feel good anymore, what do we assume? We assume something's wrong. Something's off. This isn't the right person. And we go to something new because really what we're saying is we need that dopamine kick. Avoiding commitment, putting my wants above other people's wants. It's, it's fascinating to me um, that even like non-religious people, atheists, like we all have a religious narrative. We, and I'm gonna come back to this. We all have a narrative that defines our lives, that guides our lives, right? And even people, and, and if you would, wherever you would you know, call yourself today, I don't care. But in the Western system, the, the, the idea of sin, and sin means something isn't right. It's, there's a falling short of the ideal. The, the idea of sin in the West is when it doesn't feel good anymore. Oh man, that's, sin is here. I need to find something to save me from this not feeling good. There was a study that was just fascinating, put out by the University of Virginia, that gave people a shock, a small shock, and most people would say that they would not, they would pay money to not experience that again. 
And then they left them in the room for 15 minutes with nothing to do, nothing to look at, no phones. And they found in those 15 minutes, people who said, I would pay money to not experience that, two thirds of men and one quarter of women shocked themselves. <laughs> right? <laughs> Just, it's better than sitting in this dull sense of nothing. Which it's, it's humorous, but it also demonstrates that we are products of our environment. We just wanna feel something. We can't stand the idea of not feeling good. We're addicted to dopamine. We're all addicted to dopamine, but the more dopamine you have, the less serotonin you have, which means so long as life for you is this doesn't feel good, I need something new, you'll never discover the truth. You'll go from one high to the next, and the result will be addiction to pleasure and constant discontentment. So we have the studies to back that up too. 40% of Americans are more anxious uh, this time, uh, more anxious today than they were this time last year. 18% of the population has a diagnosed anxiety disorder. And according to the World Health Organization, America is the richest and by far, by a wide margin, the most anxious country in the world. The proof's in the pudding, guys. Seeking that pleasure, avoiding the sense of this doesn't feel good, that breeds unhappiness. The only way, or I should say one of the ways to have a chance to find happiness, contentment, truth, is lowering your dopamine kicks, stop going from new thing to new thing, and raising your serotonin. We're gonna talk about that later of how we can do that. AKA, learning to wait. Waiting, sitting in that unpleasant space. Like, this doesn't feel good. This doesn't feel good. But sitting there, you're retraining your brain. I mean, the Greek speaks to that. The Greek word for waiting, we, we saw that with Simeon. Um, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. It's pros decamai. It's a compound word. Decamai means to receive. Pros means to or toward. So to wait for something means I am receiving it to me, which means you can't go get it. To wait literally means, and we can talk about difference between active waiting and passive waiting. There are different ways you can receive, but to wait literally means I am receiving. I am sitting in a space knowing that I cannot generate the thing I'm waiting for. When you're waiting, when you feel discontent, the lack of pleasure, aware that you're waiting, in this Christmas season, the way it does sometimes, the addictions that filled your body, that distracted you from feeling the pain of existence, they begin to be revealed. We realize how addicted we all are. So that's the first thing waiting does. It reveals our addictions. The second thing waiting does is it reveals the secret. Like, ooh, mysterious, the secret. <laughs> waiting reveals the secret. All right, so let's say you break up in a relationship and you don't go to a next one. You just sit there in the pain of that. Let's say you force yourself to sit on the train without your phone. Let's say uh, you stop being a workaholic or, or at least like you develop some balance with your work. Let's say you stop being a travelaholic and going from one new trip to the next new trip. Stop living for that. Let's say you begin to face the loneliness in your heart. You begin to, what's happening? You're seeing the world soberly, right? 
You're seeing the world soberly. You're stopping to distract yourself with pleasure and you're sitting in the world with the things that aren't addictive. Things like marriage, relationships, like family, like, like, like friendships, like a, a, good, a good job, a good work where you take some sort of pleasure. I don't mean like dopamine pleasure, but like meaning from it, right? You start sitting in those things. You're going to learn the secret. And here's the secret, y'all ready? This existence thing, it's a cruel joke. <laughs> You're like, what, did the pastor just say that? <laughs> Go with me. It's a cruel joke. It's not enough. It's not enough. Even the best things, the things that don't addict us, they're still not enough. The reason we like to feel addicted, and we do, let's not get it twisted. We like not to feel bad. We like to feel good. We like the addictive stuff. It's because it's one way of our furious attempt to construct meaning for our lives. We are all obsessed with constructing meaning. And when we get sober, when we realize that everything we've done and all the energy we've poured out into the world to construct meaning, to legitimate my existence, it's pointless because friends, I'm still going to die. I, I, this is kind of like a high revelation, but I promise you I'm not high. But like, there's going <laughs> to be a day when every single one of us in here is not alive anymore. We're not gonna be here, we're not gonna be breathing. Our kids won't be alive on the earth anymore. It's pointless. And you can fool yourself and say, well, my legacy will live on and children, you'll still be dead. You'll still be dead. It won't matter if your legacy lives on. You won't know anything about it. It is a cruel joke, this existence thing. And the worst part of it all is that none of us can accept it. None of us. And you look at the history books, no human culture has ever been able to accept it. There's something in, deep inside of us that will not accept the meaninglessness of it all. We deeply, deeply crave meaning for our lives and nothing gives it to us. It's always elusive. So when you get rid of the, the addictions and you sit with the good stuff, you still recognize that it's not there. It's not there. And sometimes worse than even waiting for the thing is actually getting it <laughs> and then realizing, oh my gosh, it's not here either. Get that promotion that you've spent your entire career building for. And you're gonna have a moment. I don't know, it might not be at first. At first you might be like, oh, this feels great. But there will be a moment where the hollowness of it, the meaninglessness of it, it just shines out. And you're like, oh my gosh, I wasted my life. Get that spouse that you're waiting for. Get that child or that family or whatever it is that you're like, once I get this, there will be meaning. Once I get this, there will be a purpose for my life. Get it and it will flee, I promise you. It will flee. There's a, there's a book where this character describes it and she describes, in fact, that it's, it's when she was happiest that she longed the most, that she was aware of the secret, that even in the happiness, it wasn't enough. So, so we read about this character. It was when I was happiest that I longed most because it was so beautiful. It set me longing, always longing. Somewhere else, there must be more of it. Everything seemed to be saying, Psyche, come. That's her name, Psyche. But I couldn't come. 
and I didn't know where I was to come to. See, sometimes even worse than the waiting for it is to get something, to actually find the happiness, to sit at that table with your family or friends, and for a brief moment, you see it. You're in the glimpse, you're in the presence of glory. You're in the presence of beauty. You're like, this is it. This is wholeness. This is completeness. But then it flees. It goes. You're like, where did it go? There has to be more of it. Where is it? We live in a world with deep longing for meaning, for love, for joy, for peace. And we taste these things momentarily, but it never lasts. We taste these things in our family and in our friends, but it flees. The mystics had a term for this. They called it blessed longing. Blessed longing. And that's the idea that we not only feel the reality, but also the absence of what it is we long for. That in this thing, we're seeing through it and we, we feel the reality of the meaning, but we also feel the absence of it. Which is why, friends, every narrative that this world has to offer us fails because it doesn't make sense of the logic. It doesn't follow the logic. It doesn't think. The narratives that say that there is no creator, there is no God, those narratives fail. Why? Because they don't take seriously how fiercely our souls crave meaning. So consider this. I think I've used this before as a thought experiment. All right, if there is a creator and the creator is light, right? And the creator makes a world and the world is just bathing in light. It just exists in light, right? But then for some reason, the light is removed from the world and now the world exists in darkness. Well, that would make sense that the creatures in this world are longing for light again. They are longing, like where did the light go? Why did it leave us? Right? Now, Say there is no creator of light who is light. There is nothing of that. The world emerges out of darkness. Well, why is it that so far as we can tell, all the creatures of this world have always been asking, why is this not enough? They would have never discovered that it wasn't enough because there is no light to contrast to their present state of existence. Uh, light would be, a, or darkness would be a word without meaning because they wouldn't know it. It just would be how it's always been. But that's never been the case, right? So far as we can tell, all of us have always never been able to accept that there is no meaning in this universe. We're, we're sure that there must be. Even though we're gonna die and we don't have anything for that, there must be meaning. Let's, let's take that same example. Let's say that there's a creator and this creator's name is meaning, pure goodness, pure hope, pure joy, pure love. And this creator makes a world and bathes that world in goodness and joy and hope and love and meaning. And then for some reason, removes the meaning. Well, then it makes sense of our souls that the creatures are like, there has to be meaning for us because we had tasted it once before. We came from it. That makes sense. So the narratives that say that there is no God don't take seriously the human condition. They don't take seriously. But the other narratives that say you have to go find your meaning, 
You have to go construct it. Don't wait for it. Go get it. They also fail. And they fail because they don't take seriously that we taste it, but it never lasts. It's not in it. So we get the family, but then it disappears. We get the job and then whatever it is that we were waiting for, whatever the meaning we were hoping would come from it, it's not there. There's still something else. We've, there's, uh, pastors are greener on the other side. We're still looking. It's not there. Even religion, even, and this is where it gets confusing, sometimes the way the Christian faith is talked about is an example of this, is a failed narrative. Because religion talks about, okay, you have this sense of meaninglessness. We got to find meaning. Go do these things. Go believe these doctrines. Um, construct meaning for your life. And those fail too, don't they? It all fails. Which is why if we're going to follow the logic, and if we're going to trust ourselves. We don't have to trust our minds and our hearts or the large sample size of most people in the world. But if we're going to trust the human condition, there must be a creator who knows why we exist. There must be. There must be a creator who knows the meaning for your existence that says you're not an accident. You live on this earth for a purpose and it doesn't end at death. There must be. And whatever that meaning is, whatever that thing is we're waiting for, it can't be found from our efforts. And it can't be found from anything in this world. Because we get it, even the best things, and then it flees. We get it, we taste it, like psyche. Like so when we're happiest that we long the most, and we shouldn't. We should be content, but it's, it's not there either. So there has to be a creator who knows the meaning for our existence, and it can't come from us constructing it or chasing after it. It has to come from the creator. Which is why every narrative fails our lived experiential reality except for one. Because this is precisely what we get in the story of Jesus. This is the deeper secret that we realize at Christmas. That he is the one your hearts have been waiting for. Friends, I'm going to say that again. I know it's bold for some people in the room. I don't care where you are. No, that's not true. I do. Of course I care where you are. <laughs> I don't care what you would say back to me right now. I feel for where you are, but I want to tell you the truth. And you can keep searching, but this is the truth. I don't care if you followed him 20 years ago or if you don't even know what you are spiritually. The one your heart is waiting for is Jesus. As Augustine said, our hearts are restless, O Lord, and they will remain restless until they find their rest in you. That is the meaning for your existence. The meaning for your life is to know the one who created you on purpose and who delights in you. And out of that relationship to experience the world anew. And Jesus fulfills both of our requirements. He comes from the creator, so he knows the meaning behind your existence. And we actually learn later, not only does he come from the creator, but he kind of is the creator, is the son of the creator, is the creator. We're still working that out. We don't know exactly what it means. But basically he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. The father and I are one. So he knows the creator intimately and therefore knows the meaning for our existence, the meaning for the world existence. He is the light come back into the earth. 
And that's why everyone freaked out when they saw him, when he did his ministry. They're like, who is this guy? There's something different about him. There's a fullness and a meaning about him. And because he came to us, we don't go find him. We simply receive him. And it is an active reception. It is a opening of the hands and the heart saying, I receive you. But he fulfills both requirements. He is the one that we've all been waiting for. Simeon knows this. I told you we're getting back to Simeon. Simeon knows this. I don't know if you caught this, but we're told that Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for Israel to be put right. But notice the promise was not that he'll see that. He won't see the consolation of Israel. He'll simply see the Messiah, the one through whom the consolation will come. And he's appeased. He's not even getting what he's promised. And if if you're being honest, if we're all being honest, isn't that kind of like life? Aren't those the best things? When, when we feel like there's promises coming for us, but they're not really just for us. They also include so many more people, right? That's Simeon. And he knows, because he knows that ultimately, that's not where the meaning comes from. Once the consolation of Israel comes, that won't be like, oh, that's it. No, the meaning is in the relationship with God through the presence of the Spirit, the Spirit. Because he knows even that won't be enough, he's able to accept the promise of God that he won't be the one to see the consolation of Israel, but he will get to welcome the Lord's Messiah before he dies. Isn't that incredible? Simeon's eyes were not even on what his heart wants so badly. No, because he knows it's not there. It's with God. It's in him. And he's able to realize this and recognize this because when the child Jesus comes into the temple, and there's lots of reasons to suspect that people weren't waiting for a child to come as the savior. Simeon sees him. He understands this is the fulfillment of the promise. He takes him in his arms and he blesses God. He says, Lord, now you can dismiss me in peace. You have fulfilled your promise. The consolation of Israel has not come. We are still under foreign oppression We're still under the boot of Rome, but I am content. It is enough because it won't come from these things. It'll only come through relationship with you. A life lived to simply see the Savior, and it was meaningful because the meaning was not found in the promise being fulfilled. It was found in life with God. And once you know that, and here's the incredible thing about this story and and this life, this abundant life, once you know that what you're waiting for, the meaning that your heart so desperately longs after, it can't be found in anything. It can't be found in the spouse or the family or the job, or it can't be found in any of those things. Once you know that it can only come in relationship with your creator, and you can have that because that's who Jesus is. He's the gift of the meaning for us. Once you know that, you get it all back. You get it all back, which is why I said earlier, since following Jesus, I feel like I think better. I think better now. I don't have to lose my mind. I actually get my mind back in fuller measure. You get family back. You get career back. You get it all back, but you get it in a different way because you're not looking to it as the ultimate thing to give you meaning, to legitimate your existence. You know it's not there. It's in him. But he created the world. The world is good. 
the world. This whole thing is one grand campaign of restoration for the world. We get to join in the restoration of the world. We have a purpose. How cool is that? And the campaign comes through the table in a lot of ways. But we don't look to that as the source of meaning. We look to him. We receive him. C.S. Lewis writes, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. In that sense, our real selves are all waiting for us in him. Isn't that interesting? You feel like you've been waiting for stuff, but your real self, what you're waiting for is waiting for you in him. When you receive him, you finally get it. It's no good trying to be myself without him. Your real new self will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will only come when you are looking for him. Jesus is the creator's gift of meaning for your life and for the world. I want to invite the band back up. I want to end with this. Because I told you I was going to come back to the neuroscience, right? I told you that. Everything I just said, it's confirmed in the neuroscience too. <laughs> Dr. Lustig, he talks about, all right, we've got to lower the dopamine, increase serotonin. And we said that, you know, even if those things that help us increase serotonin, they're not going to be enough. They're still not going to give an ultimate sense of meaning. But he talks about, well, if we had Jesus first, it, it, well, he didn't say that. I said that. <laughs> but if we have relationship with the creator through Jesus first, well, then we can enter into all of those best things in a new way. But no matter where you are, he says there, there are four C's, four C's to increasing serotonin. And he might as well just be describing the gospel. You know, here's the four. Connection, interpersonal relationships, not phone to phone, but like deep, deep knowledge of people where they know the dirty stuff about you and you know the dirty stuff about them and no one's going anywhere. That, those types of relationships, that will increase serotonin. Contribution is the second C, contribution. And what he means by that is when you give yourself away to something where you reap no reward for it. It's the exact opposite of the dopamine. What's he saying? He's saying agape love. He said, for God so loved the world that God gave himself. God gave himself that whosoever would live with him, would have eternal life. The third C is coping. Learning to wait. Learning to wait patiently. And the fourth C, friends, I kid you not. He sort of says this last one, it puts all of them together. Do this one and you'll do all three to increase your serotonin. The fourth C, says is cook. Cook a meal, right? I'm not even joking, friends. The table. The imagery of heaven, the new heaven, the new earth being a wedding feast. Because when you cook a meal for people, you're connecting with others. You're contributing to something outside yourself. You're waiting for the food to be prepared. Friends, Jesus is God's serotonin boost to the world. Jesus is God's serotonin boost to the world. Jesus is the creator connecting with us. Jesus is the creator contributing to us, giving all he has outside of himself. Jesus is God coping with us, waiting alongside of us. And everywhere Jesus goes, there's room at the table. 
He goes from meal to meal to meal. He leaves us a meal and says, while you're waiting for the kingdom to be fully manifested, eat together, cook and eat together. There is meaning. I don't know if that's good news for you today, but there is meaning for your existence. You're not an accident. You were created on purpose. Everything, if you trust yourself, what's going on, there is meaning and it will be found in relationship with Jesus. You need to receive the Lord Jesus today. Everyone in this room. I don't care if you've never received him. I don't care if you've received him 30 times, come up to 35 different altar calls. You need to receive him today, anew, afresh. Out of that relationship, out of that relationship, everything flowers and makes sense. So at Christmas, this Christmas, my prayer is that we would all learn to wait. That we would stop distracting ourselves with pleasures that flee. That we would know that even if we're not doing that, even the best things are not enough. And that the invitation for all of us is to receive the gift of meaning. The one who wants to connect with us, contribute to us, cope with us, and share a meal with us. That is who our God is. He's the gift of meaning for your life and for our world. Would you pray with me? Father, I, I just, I pray for hearts that trust what's going on inside of them right now. How easy it is to have our hearts burn within us, to know that as we, as we look at this story, that this is all the best things. It's all the truth. It makes the most sense for what goes on in my mind and my heart and in my world. But still we can be resistant to it. And the reason why is quite simple because to enter into a relationship with you, to receive the Lord Jesus, means that I am no longer Lord. Means that you have to give me meaning. You have to give me the purpose for my existence. It's your words about me that make me come alive. But my prayer, Lord, right now, is that for every heart in this room, for those who have never received you or for those who have, that they would trust the way their hearts are moving and that they would receive you right now. That they would actively invite you in, into their lives, into their stories. That they would give you permission to speak. Pursue us, Lord. This Christmas, even as we still wait, would we know so clearly that what we're ultimately waiting for is you. Would you stand together? Would you respond by singing? Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts and lots more, 
visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.